Caleb, we just used you as an example last night, brother. In a positive way, be encouraged. We read a great paper by Dorothy Sayers about the lost tools of learning. And one of the statements she has, this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But actually, it has something to do. Because one of her points was, we teach classes today where you have these subjects and they don't have anything to do with one another because we don't teach people how to think. We only teach them subjects. But actually everything is related. So this is related because it's truth and all God's, all truth is God's truth. But back to the point, Caleb, one of the points she makes is she says, she's uh, Dorothy Sayers. This was an essay given many years ago to a group of people and she was a medieval literature Scholar. And she said, we need to go back to studying the way they did 500 years ago. And I already know that all of you in front of me won't take my advice and listen to me. But that doesn't bother me. I'm still going to tell you to do it. And she says, now why is it back in the day that people were going off to the university when they were 14 years old? And isn't that true? We've been reading studying church history at our church for a year and a half, and we're up to 70-something on our biographies, and person after person goes off to, off to the university when they're something like 12 or 14 or 16 years old. And she says that's not by accident, and then at the end, she gives her whole case, and then at the end, she says, if you follow my advice and you train your children classically, by the time you're 14 years old, you should be hand and fist over all the other students. And by the time you're 16, you should be going off to the university. And this group that we were talking about, oh, oh, I said, Caleb, Caleb's my example. Because Caleb's a 14-year-old. Have you seen Caleb? Caleb's this and this and this. And so you are our example, Caleb. And thank you for the testimony that you've been to our children. And I hope that you will sit up straight and be an example to Lawson of how to listen well. All right, well, our lecture today, lecture six, is on the first interpretation principle, which you could call a number of things. Salvation, you could call it spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's really on illumination. And now we're getting a little complicated because we have several mnemonic devices that are growing here. And if this is confusing to you, please let me know because I want to do better. And I want to do anything I can to help you understand. We're going through how to prepare a sermon. And the first one, S, was select. Select a passage. You can't preach on something unless you first choose a passage. We gave several ways how to do that. The O is observe. And that is observe the buffalo and just look, 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 look your eyes out. Make observations. This is the data gathering section of sermon preparation. <clears throat> And then L, what is that? Link. Link. Link, that would be cross-references. Now, actually, cross-references, this aspect also is going to come in later on here of actually interpreting. But this section right here is how to gather more information and ways to collect cross-references. And we said the best way is just to pray and ponder and meditate on that passage when Scripture comes to your mind, and that's why it's so important to be in the Word constantly. And then D last week was divide, and that is to break it down into sections. And today we got to I, 
And this is going to be interpret, that is interpretation. So now we've got the uh, data together. And Pastor Seth, I just was pondering this particular point, And it made me think of John Frame. Because John Frame has been very influential on us. And he puts everything in threes. And it's just amazing how many things are in threes in the scripture. And I thought, you know what? I was thinking about the illustration with Caleb. And then I was thinking about John Frame, the threes. And you put those, the trivium putting together. I thought, you know what? I think this works pretty nicely. So you've got, remember we talked about the Venn diagram? Right? Just there. Right here. Okay? And I think this works well with the classical method of teaching. You've got the grammar section, or what Dorothy Sayers is the parrot section, and that is when kids are around 1 to 11 or 12, something like that. This is the stage when children just like to memorize. It's just, it's just data. It's data dump. You're, you're doing rhymes. You're doing chants. You're learning... Maputo is the capital of Mozambique. You're learning 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's just info. And then you get to the next stage, which would be the logic stage. This is the stage that Audrey is just leaving. And Caleb is in and probably departing. And this is when the information now is, we got all the info, but now we're trying to put it in pieces. And this is when we start to like to argue. And especially, and Sayer says this. Young people especially like to ask hard questions, and especially ask hard questions to adults, and especially if they can stump the adult. That's what they really like. And she says, don't be angry with that. That's just normal. Do you know anyone like that, Colin, who likes to do that kind of thing? <laughs> you have the logic stage, and then the R stage. She would call this the, um, the, the parrot stage, where you're just copying what everyone else says. She would say this is the pert stage, which no one knows what pert means today. It's just kind of the sassy stage where you like to argue and kind of figure out a way to stop someone. And then the R, rhetoric, or the poetic stage. That's when you're learning how to take all the information and then you're breaking it down and interpreting it. And then the final stage is how to articulate it and how to give a persuasive argument. That's primarily... What Pastor Seth has been focusing on. That would be homiletics. And I thought, I think these guys right here could fit into this section right there. This would be kind of the grammar stage, the info stage. And then I think interpretation, that is going to fit right here. And we're going to have several uh, lessons on hermeneutics. That would be the logic stage. And then these final two right here. This is going to go to rhetoric and how to present it, which Pastor Seth has been focusing on. So this is where we are, right here, letter I, interpretation. And I'm going to give you another uh, mnemonic device, which is scripture. And these are going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine principles of interpreting the Bible. We're going to cover one of them this evening, and that is... Salvation, spirit, illumination. Charles Spurgeon once said, The gift of spectacles to a blind man is of no use. Imagine Jesus coming to blind, the blind man in the Gospels 
And before he heals them, someone comes over to the blind man and takes a pair of spectacles, which hadn't been invented yet, but just work with me. And you put the spectacles on the blind man and say, has it helped? That is just as foolish as expecting an unbeliever to grasp the scriptures. It doesn't mean an unbeliever can't understand anything of the Bible, but he can never truly grasp it. What Spurgeon was saying is this. The Spirit of God does not work within an unbeliever to help him understand the Scripture. The Spirit of God, rather, illumines, not unbelievers, but believers. And that is the meaning of 1 John 2.20, which we will discuss at the end of our talk today. It is one of the clearest passages on Spirit illumination. Not only is it clear, but it's foundational. In fact... If someone came up to me and said, Paul, or someone comes up to Cornet and says, Cornet, I want to understand the Bible. It's just, I open it, it's like Chinese to me. I can't understand any of it. You know what the first thing I would do? Before I even started talking about, well, you got to get the context and you got to understand the meaning of words. I'd say, you need to be converted. That's the first step. That's the foundational step. You need salvation. You need the Spirit of God, which is, in this case, the same thing. Because everyone who's converted receives the Holy Spirit of God. I think that is the first step of interpreting the Bible. Thus far, we've gone through sold. Now we've reached the I. And now we've come to a more formal process of interpreting the Bible's meaning. And sometimes we use a fancy word, word called hermeneutics, which is simply... Meaning the interpretation of scripture. And the first one that we're going to talk about is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the S that I chose here with scripture. Again, just so that you can remember these more easily. And as you're studying the Bible, and how am I going to unpack this? How am I going to interpret this? Maybe this mnemonic device will help you. The S could be spirit, salvation, or really Illumination. Let me define illumination for you, Roman figure number three. Here it is. Definition. The Holy Spirit enlightens the minds of Christians to understand the Bible. That is illumination. Here's the key passage. 1 John 2, 27. But the anointing that you have received from him. Now, it doesn't speak specifically to the Spirit, but interesting, I read one translation this morning that said, gives it this way, you have received the Holy Spirit. But this is what the ESV says, but the anointing, that is the word chrisma, you hear a little bit of charisma in there, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. Now, we'll stop there for a moment. Abides, remains. I'll come to our Greek scholar in the back, Caleb. What is, how do you say to, re, what is the Greek word for remain? Meno. Meno, there it is. That's the idea. Meno, remain, abide, stays. He's not going anywhere. With a believer, he stays there. He abides with you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his, as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and it is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Now we'll unpack that at the end of our talk. Let's go to Roman figure number four. 
an explanation of spirit illumination. Unbelievers are blind to spiritual truth. Charles Darwin was blind to spiritual truth. And that's why he taught that humans come from animals. Paul says that the foolish hearts of non-Christians are darkened. And he says that though they claim to be wise, they're actually foolish. Charles Darwin is considered a great man by the world. Greatly intelligent. We have whole classes in graduate courses studying this man. And he was a fool. The Bible predicted this in Romans 1. Listen to what Martin Luther said. Nobody who has not the spirit of God sees a jot. A jot is a dot. There you go. Sees a jot of what is in the scriptures. All men have their hearts darkened so that... Even when they can discuss and quote all that is in scripture, they do not understand or really know any of it. The spirit is needed for the understanding of all scripture and every part of scripture. That means we need light. That is illumination. We need light because we're blind and we're in darkness. We need the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Bible. Again, Charles Spurgeon said this. If you do not understand a book by a departed writer, you are unable to ask him his meaning. Now, stop there. Who knows what Stonehenge is? Stonehenge, there it is in England. It's this monument in England, and who knows what it means. People have different theories, but we don't really know what it means because the people who put it there, they're long gone. So we can't go to them and say, what does it mean? Spurgeon says, if you're reading a book, you can do your best, but that author's long gone, and if he's confusing, you're sunk. But then he says, but the spirit... Who inspired scripture thousands of years ago. He lives forever. And he delights to open the word to those. Who seek his instruction. Letter E other passages. Now here's where we're going to get a little. We're going to get some application here. Because the point here is not just to understand the Bible. But we, we need to use this principle of illumination to help us in our preaching. So I would encourage you, when we go through this list, I'm going to give you seven cross-references right here. I just did this. I did link. I took this passage, this idea, and I linked it to seven other passages. I'm going to give you seven. And I would encourage you, when you go through your sermon preparation time, pray over one of these verses at the beginning. Or in the middle. Or at the end. Or all three. Here's Psalm 119, 18 through 19. Isaac, could you read that, please? Open. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Hide not your commandments from me. This is prayer. Okay, we'll stop there. So, that word open, you could just use the word illumine. That's what David's saying. Open my eyes, give me illumination. 
This is a prayer for spiritual insight. I'm unable. I'm coming to the passage. I'm not sure what's going on here. Open my eyes. Illumine. Matthew 13. Mufundis. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, stop there. It has been given. What has been given? You can say illumination. The ability to understand the Bible. Keep going. But to them it has not been given. It. But to them it has not been given. What is the it? Illumination. The ability to understand the Bible. Keep going. For to the one who has, who has more will be given. And he will, be, he will have an abundance. Blessed are your eyes for they see. Yes. So here it is. The spirit needs to unlock the door to understand the scriptural secrets. Unbelievers, they have physical eyes, but they don't have spiritual eyes. Three, Cornet, could you read that verse? And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. A natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. First Corinthians 2. The natural man, that is the unbeliever, receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Oh, in case I haven't gone far enough, Paul says, he says, adds to it, nor can Right? That goes back to ability. That goes back to total inability when we talk about the doctrines of grace. Nor can they. I love what John Kelvin says. He says, when an unbeliever is faced with God's truth, he's like a donkey at a concert. Okay, so let me Africanize it a little bit. It's like saying, this is like a baboon with a PhD. Actually, that's not a great illustration because I don't know which of those would be smarter. So let me give another illustration. You'd say, it's like a hyena in medical school, right? It's like, this is insane. This, you have this animal sitting there trying to understand these uh, precise concepts. No, spiritual things need illumination. They are spiritually discerned. That's why we need conversion. So neighbor... Or coworker that I work with, and you say, I can't understand the Bible. And you say, well, you know, I can, I can show you some things, but you're lost. You're blind. You don't have the Spirit of God within. You can't understand. You're, you're unable. You're the donkey at the concert. You're trying to understand, you know, the sonata that's being played. And you cannot until the Spirit of God comes within and Sush, could you read Luke 24, 45? Then you open their minds to understand the scripture. Okay, this is someone, something that someone on the outside did to someone. What do we call that? When he opened their minds to understand the scripture. We have a theological term for that. What, do, what is that? Illumination. Illumination. That's what it is. That's why when we do sermon prep, it would be great to say, Lord, I'm in Romans 3, and I just, I cannot see what Paul is doing here. I can't see, the, how does he move 
from the end of Romans 2 to Romans 3, I can't see how this fits. Lord, would you open my mind to understand the scriptures? That is praying for illumination. Give me an accurate understanding of salvation. Give me an accurate understanding of the Bible. Number five. Brother, could you read that? Ephesians 1. Lloyd. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now, this is a prayer, by the way. Paul is, not only do we find doctrinal verses about illumination, now Paul is actually asking for illumination on the part of other Christians. Have you ever prayed that God would give illumination to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Sometimes we get kind of stale, but if we follow the prayers of great men in the Bible, we would be praying for the illumination of others. Keep going, Lloyd. May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Yeah. So I think Pastor Seth is going to have a lecture later on about insight. This is not just asking, Lord, help them to understand some facts. Help them to know what was created on each day of creation. Give them, give them insight, right? Isn't that what Dorothy Sayers was saying? She was saying, okay, this is good. Teach them the days of creation. Teach them the ten plagues. Okay, that's good. That's a grammar stage. But there's got to be a, a part where we're not teaching them how to think. Give them insight. Help them to follow the logic and help them to articulate it. Praying for illumination. Number six, Bodhi Reggie. You gave, uh, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manner from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Okay, so illumination is not an obscure doctrine that is found in one corner of the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament, it's found in the New Testament, it's found all over. Give them the spirit, give them illumination. And then finally, Psalm 119, at least nine times in Psalm 119, David asks God to teach me your statutes. That is, teach me the Bible. Give me understanding. And by the way, the psalmist is not asking for direct revelation. He's not, the modern equivalent would not be, Lord, please show me who's going to be the ANC president next. Like, that would be divine revelation. That would be added on. No, we don't, we're not asking for that. What we're asking for, help me to understand what is already in the Scripture. And we're going to talk about the canon being closed a little bit later. All right, well, Roman figure number five. This is eight things illumination does not mean. And I'm going to try to follow uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones here, who is, of course, a med- medical doctor. And he said... One of the great things to do in preaching is before you tell your people what a passage says, tell them what it does not say. You can imagine doctor, medical doctor, Lloyd-Jones, sitting down with the patient and saying, okay, well, we did these tests and I just want you to know it's not typhoid. And it's not cholera. It's not HIV. It's not COVID. But it is cancer. Okay, what we're going to do here is we've tried to define illumination, but let me give you, to make it more precise, some things that illumination is not because I can anticipate some prosperity people 
at certain points saying, oh yes, that's right, we need illumination. That's right, we need anointing. And I'm going to say, what you think illumination is, is not the same as what the Bible says it is. So let me give you eight things that illumination does not mean. Number one, letter A, illumination does not mean new revelation. That is, illumination is not receiving new truth from God. Revelation is God making the unknowable known. That is, when God gave revelation in the Bible, he was telling us things that the world did not previously know. And now he's giving us this new truth. If someone says that God revealed something to him, something like, hey, uh, God revealed to me that he's going to come back, Jesus is going to come back in 2022. Like we can know, well, we're not sure when Jesus is going to come back, but it's not going to be in 2022. Because that would be new revelation. It should be considered false revelation since God has never revealed this in Scripture. Uh, we would say that the, that the canon is closed. Have you ever heard that? Phrase before the canon is closed. Now, when I first heard this when I was a boy, I thought, I love canons. What does this have to do with a canon? Uh, this is not blow you up canon, okay? That's C-A-N-N-O-N, all right? So if you thought that, don't worry, because I thought that too. But it's actually C-A-single-N-O-N. That means something totally different. Isn't that confusing? It's like, it's like... Ganju, right? It's like it means lock and it means crab. And sometimes I've wondered, did they call a lock a crab because it kind of looks like a crab? So sometimes we do that, right? We have the same word, it means different things. It sounds the same, canon, but it actually has one N. And when we say the canon enclosed, it's not a big gun. We're talking about C-A-N-O-N, which means a series of books. And that means all of those books, the 66 Books of the Bible, when you come to the last chapter of Revelation 22 and that's verses 18 and 19, it is closed. God is not giving any more revelation. So when we need illumination, we don't mean revelation. What we mean is, help me to understand what you already revealed. Help me to understand what is in the Bible. And this is related to the second one, letter B, which is illumination doesn't mean inspiration. Inspiration is the process by which God delivers the truth of Scripture or revelation. So think of it this way. Think of inspiration as a trumpet. So here is the man breathing out. This, In this case, it would be the Holy Spirit. God is breathing out the truth. And he's breathing it through the trumpet. And then the sound that comes out of the trumpet, or in this case, the words that come out into the Scripture, that is inspiration holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit so that's, that's inspiration that was in a time past it's not for today it's not illumination letter C illumination doesn't mean separation from God's word um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit always works in tandem with the Bible. Uh, the scripture and the spirit is like Bodhi Seth and a pen in his pocket. Like you are not going to find those separated. 
They're always together. I mean, it's like Caleb and Nico. It's like a tandem bike with two seats. They, they move together. That's the way the scripture is and the Holy Spirit. It's like a yoke of oxen. You have those together and they're moving together. The Holy Spirit's illumination always works alongside the Bible. The point of illumination is to help us to understand what the Bible says. So if people say, oh, the Lord is just illuminating me. And here this lady is in a dark room all by herself. She's not getting any illumination from the scripture. It might be from Satan. It might be from a TV show. But it's not from the Bible. Letter E. Illumination doesn't mean disregarding instruction. I'm sorry, I skipped one. Letter D. Illumination doesn't mean comprehension. That means just because you're illumined. Just because we come to this part of the preparation process and we're asking for God to help us. We don't start with a prayer and say, please help me understand. And now I'm going to comprehend everything. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That's what we want to understand. There are things we will never understand. But the things that have been revealed, that's what we're after. Number five, illumination doesn't mean disregarding instruction. And we know this from Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. God gives teachers to the church. Do you remember what those five categories were? I always think of it as a pest. Uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And what were those five given to the church for? To equip. To equip the saints. So illumination doesn't mean, well, now that the Holy Spirit's going to help me understand the Bible, I don't need other teachers. We're not saying that. We need instruction. Number six. Illumination doesn't ignore perspiration. That is, we can't be lazy. God uses means, right? So just as the doctrines of grace doesn't take away evangelism or prayer, in the same way, illumination doesn't ignore perspiration. 2 Timothy 2.7 says that the Lord will give understanding and everything. And then how does he do this? A little bit later on in the passage, in verse 15, he says... So that we might rightly divide the word of truth. And interesting, that man is called a workman. A workman. Christians are not mystics. We don't go in our dark room and close our eyes and say, Lord, just teach me. How many stories could we give, right? Of meeting prosperity people and saying, where did you get that message? Hey, the Lord just gave it to me a minute before I came up here. Or you just stand up here and you find a verse and you start talking. That's not what illumination is. We carefully pray and we carefully study scripture and trust that the spirit will give us understanding. Number seven. Illumination doesn't mean complete unification. That means Bob and Steve might both be illumined, but it doesn't always mean that they will under, uh, agree on everything. Paul and Barnabas sometimes... Disagreed. 
There's not always going to be complete doctrinal harmony. And even as I pondered that point today, I thought, you know, I think that just points back to our fallen state. There are so many items that come into an interpretation of a passage. I mean, we would like to think, hey, I'm as objective as possible. I'm just coming to the passage and I want to know what it means. But our background, our personality, books that we might have read but someone else didn't read, uh, a personal hardship that we face that we don't think plays a part in the interpretation, but it plays 5% of the part, and it might tip the scales just enough to have us take a different position. Yeah. And then finally, letter H. Uh, Pastor Seth? How can you guard against that? Because every one of us does that to one degree. How can, what, what, what can we do to guard against the, that kind of thing? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is those, those passages that we, we read, Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later on about the, the role of living a holy life plays in interpreting the Bible. I mean, you wouldn't think so, right? This is a mental exercise. I don't think so. I think understanding the Bible really is a heart exercise. And the more you're walking with Christ, uh, it is a humble man who can say, I mean, I've always believed this. I've always believed A. I've always been taught A. I've always told other people A. But Lord, if A is not the right interpretation, help me to change. Now, who's going to say that? Other than a man walking in the Spirit, right? He's, he's got the fruit of the Spirit, and he's willing to say, I'm going to change on that. I'm going to move on that. That's not a mental issue. That is a heart Issue. Good question. Letter H. Illumination doesn't negate an unbeliever's education from Scripture. Unbelievers can understand some things in the Bible due to common grace, but they will never understand how much they could or how much they should in the Bible. It is God that sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Do you have a place in your theology for that verse? Like God shuts the eyes of some people so they, they cannot understand him. I mean, do you have a place for that? That's a hard verse. There's many verses like that. Many prophets will arise and lead many astray acting as fierce wolves, not sparing the flock, but speaking twisted things and drawing people Away. So we need to be educated, understand the Bible. God may even use Satan and Antichrist and Antichrists to blind people to the truth. In fact, you need to know that every time you preach the Bible, there's a good chance that you are further hardening the heart of someone else. Because remember, Matthew 13, the Bible does not only soften, it also hardens. Just as the sun does with the clay. Number six, our responsibility. So, okay, this is illumination. This is what it doesn't mean. This is what it does mean. What are we supposed to do now at this point? Number one, conversion. Come to Christ. Okay, yes, the Holy Spirit opens the minds of Christians to understand. And yes, the work of salvation is a sovereign act of God. But man is still responsible to repent and believe the gospel so that the spirit can come and enter. So brother Bob, sister Sally, if you're having a hard time understanding the Bible, 
If you're like a donkey at the concert, then I'm telling you, come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, at that moment, the Holy Spirit will come inside and the Holy Spirit will start to play a role. They will, the Holy Spirit will illumine your mind so that now it's as though the Bible was a closed book. It was as though you were reading in the dark and now suddenly the light comes. Letter B, pray. And, and by the way, if I can go back to conversion, um, I would say just because someone's a pastor doesn't mean that you're converted. And you might struggle to understand the Bible even as a pastor because you haven't been converted. It makes me think of John Owen. John Owen is in his, his early 20s and he's actually teaching and he's opening up the Bible to teach people and he still doesn't know if he's converted yet. And that's when he goes to that service and he's supposed to hear, uh, what is it, Edward Calamy, who is this great preacher. He didn't come and now this old country preacher that we still don't know his name and Owen later tried to find his name and he couldn't. He preaches on this great text, Matthew 8, 26. And he's, he preaches and Owen says, I've been teaching the Bible and I haven't been converted. He's converted and then he became a giant in the scriptures. And the reason he became a giant is because the spirit came to live within him. Let it be prayer. The, the Christian must ask for wisdom and protection from error. Pray this. this I, hope this is not an, uh, I hope this is not an intellectual exercise for you men today as we're learning about hermeneutics. This, this is something that ought to move us to prayer, right? This is important because God has not promised insight into every text of Scripture. He will not whisper the right interpretation into the ears of lazy Bible students. Rather, when preachers humbly ask for help, the Spirit will give them understanding of what is already in the text. The preacher will be able to see more clearly and understand more deeply. And then finally, work hard. Work hard in study. Have you ever wondered why, why the Bible, why, why wouldn't God just help us to understand it immediately? It kind of makes me think, why did, not, why did God not miraculously preserve the scriptures? I mean, why all these, why all these texts, right? Why would he have it that you have all these different pieces and then you have to gather them together? I mean, God could have miraculously just put it in one book all at once. Yeah. He didn't do that. There was times when we didn't even have the scriptures in the way that we have it now. And I think one of the reasons, there are several, is God wants us to labor. He wants us to work. He wants us to trust in Him and everything in Scripture. If everything was simple to understand in the Bible, then no one would study the text. We wouldn't work hard to be in the passage. We would just open it and then preach it. But now when we make it a part of our soul, we have to wrestle and it humbles us and it forces us to pray and ask God for help. Work hard. On the passages of scripture. And then finally. Letter D. Holy living. This goes back to what Pastor Seth asked about. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. But. Just because the Holy Spirit is within you. Doesn't mean that illumination will always be the same. Believers. Can quench. The spirit. Which is why. The best preachers. Are the most holy. Preachers.
Alright, Roman figure number seven. Some questions to ask. I would encourage you, especially some of you young people. I know this is a little bit beyond you children, and I know some of you aren't even thinking about preaching right now. But could you do me a favor right now and ask yourself these questions, and especially the first question, and I'm talking to you boys right now. Am I a true believer? That's the first question. That is, do I have the Holy Spirit? Has my mind been darkened? Number two, am I asking the Spirit for illumination after each verse I read and study? Letter C, am I working hard to understand the meaning of the text, or am I lazy? Four, have I confessed all known sin in my life so that the Spirit has free course in my study? In other words, am I saved? Am I praying? Am I working? And am I holy? All right, Roman figure number eight. What I want to do now is after teaching the topic, the idea of illumination, what I want to do now is actually go to a text. I want to go to one of, if not the best passage on illumination. And it is 1 John 2. So turn your Bibles there and I'll read for you verse 20. 1 John 2. 20 says this. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. Or you all have knowledge. Now I'm focusing on that word anointed. There's a problem. Because people have taken that word anointed. And have you ever seen that word anointed used in South Africa before? Ever seen it on the back of a car? Have you ever seen it in a meme? Have you ever seen it on the front of a church? Have you ever seen people shouting about anointing? Prosperity preachers love talking about the anointing, right? Listen to what Zimbabwean prophet Isaac Sawana said in his sermon entitled, The Anointing of Prosperity. Quote, the same anointing that can heal the sick is the same anointing that can prosper you in business. Now, I won't take time with this right now, but I did put a footnote. If you follow at the bottom of your notes to number one, he's already, he, he already failed before he even opened his mouth. I mean, this guy already is disqualified and he didn't even open his mouth yet because he calls himself a prophet. He's not a prophet. There are no more prophets today. And I gave you three reasons in the footnote of why there's no prophets today. I I treat prophets today um, almost the same as I deal with the issue of tongues. In the past, I just, I dealt with it directly and I'd say, no, there's no tongues, which I believe. Uh, There's no supernatural ability to speak a previously unknown language. But I've, I've found that it's more convincing now to say, okay, great. If you believe in tongues, you can't get around this. There's four qualifications to speak in tongues uh, in 1 Corinthians 14. Do you meet those qualifications? I already know that they don't meet those four qualifications. So I found it easier to persuade people that tongues are not valid today because I just for the moment uh, pretend, okay, Tongues are valid, but 
you follow these rules. I do the same thing with prophet. Okay. Okay, you're a prophet. Great. Uh, do you meet these qualifications in Deuteronomy 18? No? Okay, you should be stoned. <laughs> uh, listen to what they say. Uh, uh, this was uh, cruel and unusual punishment. I read through this on his Facebook post. Uh, they call him Papa. This is what Mr. Moshi says about him. I connect Papa. Miss Garande says, Amen, I receive the anointing to prosper in all quarters of my life. Thank you, Father. Miss Mukau says, I tap into this anointing. Thank you, Papa. I think there's some scriptures that have something to say about that that I put just below that. So prosperity preachers like using the idea of anointing. Let me give you five ways that prosperity preachers twist the meaning of anointing in 1 John 2.20. Number one, the prosperity gospel confuses what the anointing is. I mean, you're talking about the anointing, but what exactly is this? I think if I had to summarize it, their thinking is it's some kind of spiritual power, right? If you, if you receive the anointing, that means I have some kind of spiritual power. Maybe it's the gift of tongues. Maybe it's a feeling. The prosperity gospel confuses who receives the anointing. Is it for all Christians? Is it for some Christians? Is it for the person who speaks in tongues first? In your footnote, I mentioned this. Sawana asks how the anointing can be activated. And instead of urging his audience, this is his chance. He comes to his audience and says, how can it be activated? In other words, how can you get the anointing? All right, here it is. Here's his answer. He doesn't talk about sin. He doesn't talk about coming to Christ. He doesn't talk about conversion. He doesn't talk about trust. What do you think he talks about? Money. The first requirement he lists is financial giving. Quote, if you are not willing to give God what is in your hands, you are not ready to receive what is in his hands. Those who have climbed the ladders of prosperity have at times given something to God before you withdraw from the account of God's prosperity. You have to first check how much you have deposited to God, which translation to me is what he's saying. The same anointing that can heal the sick is the same anointing that can prosper you in business. Number three, the prosperity gospel confuses when the anointing comes. When do you get this? Well, he would say when you give the money. That's not what the Bible says. We'll talk about what it means in a moment. Four, the prosperity gospel confuses from whom the anointing is given. Now, Sewana says that he's the one who gives the anointing. Listen to what he says. Quote, I decree and declare the anointing of prosperity is coming upon you today. Where did he receive this authority? To give someone the anointing, which would be giving someone the Holy Spirit. Whatever you shall touch with your hands shall prosper in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we just learned about how they twist what the anointing is. And we're going to learn in a moment how the, the anointing is the Holy Spirit giving illumination. But prosperity preachers use the anointing as a crowbar 
to get out of certain requirements and to be given certain things that they want. Let me give you a few examples of how they use anointing as a crowbar. Here's the first one. They use it to get out of church discipline. Have you ever heard the passage, 1 Chronicles 16.22, Touch not my anointed ones. That's a common verse, right? And they take that, they, they go to some random Old Testament verse, they take just the section, they don't give the context, and then they make it say what they want. Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And so they take that passage and they say, hey, hey, don't rebuke me. Are you questioning my spending habits? Are you questioning the fact that I was seen with another woman? Touch not the Lord's anointing. Even though 1 Timothy 5.20 specifically says that not only ought we to rebuke sinning pastors, but we ought to rebuke sinning pastors openly. According to Prosperity Thinking, this command in 1 Chronicles 16 was given to those pointing out error in the anointing man of God. Well, I think that's rubbish, and I gave three reasons of why that's the case. Um, the first one is that Scripture never refers to a pastor as God's anointed. That, that's a good start, right? Now, Jesus is called God's anointed in Acts 4. But listen to the titles that Paul uses for himself in 1 Corinthians 4. It's not anointed. That's way too nice of a title for himself. Listen to how Paul refers to himself. Servant, last of all, fool, weak, homeless, reviled, persecuted, scum, and refuse. Those are the titles Paul uses for himself. Another argument would be that we're told specifically to rebuke sinning pastors. And then third, in the context of 1 Corinthians 16, it's really talking to Israel. And it's not talking to uh, about pastors at all. And you would think that if the case was David, if he's making the case, don't rebuke me, that would be somewhat odd since David himself was rebuked by the prophet Nathan for sinning. Uh, another crowbar that they use is they, they use this passage to get out of study. I'm the anointed one. I don't need to study hard. Or they, they use this to avoid poverty. Listen to what Benny Hinn says. Benny Hinn says this. He calls the anointing, one of the, uh, one of the seven manifestations of the anointing is prosperity. This is what his website says. Quote, prosperity is no accident. Prosperity is the result of the anointing in your life. It is automatic. Close quote. Well, let's talk a little bit about this passage in 1 John 2.20. Uh, the, the, the book of 1 John never says that, um, that John is the author. But we know that John is the author not only because of church history, but because of the similarity it is to uh, the, the gospel of John and uh, he gives examples of how he was with Christ and he is the elder statement, statesman that is referring to uh, spending time with his little children as he refers to those in 1 John. And there was this false doctrine kind of uh, going around in the church at that time uh, called Gnosticism. And we don't use that 
term today, but Gnosticism was this idea that there is this kind of special knowledge that only some people have. It was the idea that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so they would say, okay, we agree that Jesus Christ was divine, but we can't believe that Jesus Christ was human. We can't believe that he came in a human body because that's physical and we think physical is bad. But the big idea they had there was it was a kind of mysticism. It was was a kind of knowledge that only certain people have. And really, when we break it down, it it was an attempt to remove people of their trust in the Bible. Can we not say that every false teaching in the world and in history has always had this thing in common? Its effort has been to steal people from going to the scriptures. Islam. Well, it was corrupted. The New Testament. Don't read the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church. Well, you need to go to the Pope, right? Don't go to the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses, oh, we have our own translation. The prosperity gospel and the big man theology. The idea is don't go to the Bible. Well, here comes John. And the purpose of John is what? It is assurance of salvation. Someone struggling. And uh, Bodhi Reggie and I were talking about this the other day as we're going through the Westminster not the Westminster, the uh, Baptist Confession of Faith. And we just happened to go through the section on assurance of salvation. And we are talking about that when it comes to, when it comes to assurance of salvation and when it comes to living a holy life and the more holy life you live, the more assurance you're going to have. It's not so much perfection as it is direction. So we're not saying to someone, You need to be perfect, but we are saying, has your direction changed? That is, did you sin a certain way over here, but now you can see, I'm not sinning anymore, my direction is different. And before you loved the world, and now your direction is different. You don't love the world as you did in the past. Before you did keep the faith, but now your direction is keeping the faith. And so now let's go to our passage right here, 1 John 2, and pick it up in verse 18. I love what John does here. He calls his audience little children. He says, little children, you need to be careful. Come, come, come gather. Gather here. Come, children. I have a warning for you. Because there is going to be antichrists that come. And it's not just the big antichrist, but there are little antichrists that try to usurp Jesus Christ. And they're going to try to put down his kingdom. Be careful of them and let me give you some descriptions of what these antichrists will do. And the first one is, verse 19, they're going to leave. They used to be among you, but then they're no longer among you. And he starts to build this case and he starts to say, be careful, be careful, be careful. But then he comes to verse 19 and then verse 20. And I love how this is tucked in there. It's like my children. When my children were little, they would all climb on one bed. And there was about six little kids packed up like a sandwich on that bed. And I said, Melinda, I don't know where the other one. There's only five. And they would say, oh, there's one more in there. See, you can see his foot stuck in there. Okay, pull him out. So what, 
what John is doing is he's building this case and he's describing these kinds of people. But then tucked in between verses 18 and 19, between verses 22 and 23, he makes the contrast. He says, those are, those are antichrists. Those are the people that don't believe in Jesus Christ. These are the people that ruin the church. But let me give a, dis, uh, uh, a contrast. This is what Pastor Elpheus looks like. This is what Bodhi Regina looks like. This is what Pastor Seth looks like. Verse 20. But you, you're different. You have an unction from the Holy One. This is illumination. So those questions that I asked, let me quickly summarize these. Letter D, five questions answered about anointing in 1 John 2.20. First, what is the anointing referring to? This would be on page five in your notes at the top. What is the anointing referring to? This is the permanent indwelling of the Spirit within a believer. I gave you some reasons there. We'll keep on going. This is spirit baptism. This is this work, generating work of the Holy Spirit. So what is it? Permanent dwelling of the Spirit within a believer. Number two, who receives the anointing? Well, what does it say? But you have an unction. And by the way, the you there is not singular, it's plural. This is speaking to a group of people. This is speaking about Christians as a whole. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, good cross-references. I, I love asking this, especially the new church plans, and they almost always get it wrong. I ask them, how many Christians have the Holy Spirit? How many true Christians have the Holy Spirit? Answer, all true Christians have the Holy Spirit. Number three, when is the anointing given? Answer, At the moment of salvation. We know this because when you look at verse 27. But the anointing which you have. What? Verse 27. The anointing that you have. Received. 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 Is that in the future, present, or past tense? It's in the past tense. Referring back to conversion. That's enough. From whom does this anointing come? Not from the preacher. It comes from Jesus Christ. Verse 20, it comes from the Holy One. Now, some people might say that's the Holy Spirit. But I think we should probably say that the Holy One there refers not to the Holy Spirit, but to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is often referred to as the Holy One in Scripture. And then finally, why is the anointing given? The anointing is given to guide. This is number five. Letter B, A, it is given to guide, and it is given to guard. This is the final page, page six. Hey, listen, Christians, and I'll close with this point. I know it's late. Christians can still get things wrong. We can misinterpret scripture, and therefore we need the Spirit's illumination. Just a couple days ago, we learned about the one-eyed preacher from Wales, Christmas Evans. And he was named Christmas Evans because he was born on December 25th. And Christmas Evans, midway through his ministry, fell prey to a kind of false doctrine. Now remember, he was a great preacher. Thousands came to hear him. He was spirit-filled. But there was a time when he drifted from the Bible. And there was a man named John Sandman... And John Sandman was going around teaching uh, 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 this idea 
that saving faith is just intellectual. It's not a part of the heart. It's not repentance. It's just intellectual. And it became known as Sandemanism. And it spread throughout the churches in Wales. And it really blew a cold air into the churches. And gone went evangelism. Gone went prayer. And gone went missions. And actually, Christmas Evans himself fell prey to that false doctrine for several years until he repented. The moral of the story is, even we as believers, as 